Amen. Today, for the next however long it takes, um, but I don't, I don't plan on being up here very long. I want to talk to you from something that's been on my heart. In fact, I thought, excuse me, I thought it's been, um, it was, I think three years, we've been here almost two years, so it was probably either two or three years ago now, I think we were in this building at one of our conferences, and I said something about fathers. Does anybody remember that? There was a fathering spirit, and the Lord really wanted to move upon the country in the ways of fathers. And, and the next thing I knew, there were many fathers that gathered down, and I didn't realize the brokenness that lived inside of many people who were fathers. Does anybody remember? I mean, it was one of the most, uh, one of the most um, somber but holy things that I, that I remember happening in this place. You see full-grown men who love God, and want to love their families, but because there's a broken place inside of them, there's a little bit of a disconnect between how can I be a father when I feel like there's a disconnect between me and father. And a lot of that is because of things that have happened naturally, but also a lot of that is because of things that have happened spiritually where people have gotten up and misrepresented what God looks like. They preach God, but they don't know how to preach father because they don't know him as father. Is he both? Absolutely. But first and foremost, he's father. That's why Jesus said, the first thing he said when the disciples said, teach us how to pray, he said, here's how you pray. Say this, our father. I mean, uh, he, he included everyone at his table. The father's table is probably bigger than you think it is. In fact, I would say his table, his table is all inclusive. Everyone is invited at the table of the Father. And he said, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be, you know the mandate, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But our Father is how we started. It was, it was a new concept. It was a new concept for Jesus to use what was not a, it was not a Greek word, it was an Aramaic word, uh, but, but rendered in the Greek, Abba, Daddy, Papa. Our Papa. Papa, not just progenitor, not just, not just procreator. Yes, all of that, but, but honestly, Papa, my own dear Papa is how one translation puts it. It, it was revolutionary. In fact, Brendan Manning, Brendan Manning called the Our Father principle the revolutionary revelation of Jesus' ministry. Jesus came to show us what the Father looked like. And not only that, there's, um, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember his name. I think it's Pal Hazalo, but that might not be, that might be uh, Pazalo. It might not be perfectly right, but this Father says this. Every picture of, of the Father, every picture of God, is subservient to and must bow to the perfect picture of God, which is the Logos of God, which is Jesus. So every Old Testament picture that we get of God is just that. It's a picture, but it's not necessarily a reality, and it certainly is not full reality. Every single picture and understanding of God is subservient to the understanding of God as seen in Jesus Christ. I'm going to let you say amen right because it's true. So what I want to talk to you about today for the next few minutes is, I've just titled Redemption, the Rescue of the Orphan Heart. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read from the Passion Translation. I was raised on the King James Version, and I love the King James Version. I also love the New American Standard. I also love the NIV. In fact, there's not a translation that I've read. I've got one sitting on my desk that you can't get digitally yet, I don't think, by Francois Dutois. Um, who I shared one of his posts yesterday, who he personally hand-wrote a note to me and sent it called the Mirror Bible. It's a, beautiful, it's, a, it's a beautiful rendering of the New Testament, well, John through Revelation, and there's more to be done. So I like how there are different perspectives, and, and, give, and of course, these are, 
these are well-studied theologians. These aren't men that just say, this is what I think the Scripture says. It amazes me some of these, like, for instance, King James only guys. We only read King James. Well, you do understand that's a translation. And you also understand that when you get up and read from the King James and tell people what you think that means, you essentially translated it. I mean, unless you're quoting the King James, then you're condemning people for doing what you do every Sunday. But anyways, you know, you got to be smart to figure that out. Romans 8, Romans 8, the Passion Translation, if we've got it. So now the case is closed. There remains no accusing voice of condemnation against those who are joined in life union with Jesus, the Anointed One. For the law of the Spirit of life flowing through the anointing of Jesus Christ has liberated us from the law of sin and death. For God achieved what the law was unable to accomplish because the law was limited by the weakness of human nature. Yet God sent His Son in human form to identify with human weakness. Clothed with humanity, God's Son gave His body to be the sin offering so that God could once and for all condemn the guilt and power of sin. Notice He doesn't condemn man, He condemned the guilt and power of sin. So now every righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled through the anointed one living his life in us. It's amazing. And we are free to live, not according to our flesh, but by the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit. Those who are motivated by the flesh only pursue what benefits them or themselves, but those who live by the impulses of the Holy Spirit are motivated to pursue spiritual realities. For the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset controlled by the Spirit finds life and peace. How many people would like to find some life and peace? Surrender your mindset to the Spirit. That's how you get there. In fact, the mindset focused on the flesh fights God's plan and refuses to submit to His direction because it can't. For no matter how hard they try, I'm going to read it again until you get it, no matter how hard they try, the emphasis is how hard they try. There's a, what he's drawing is a contrast between trying to work something and the rest in being. There is a contrast. Trying to work something which is the Old Testament law and the and, and the and the understanding. Are you saying the law is bad? No, I'm saying the law is fulfilled. Stop holding yourself under law. And if you're not Jewish, it wasn't given to you anyways. But anyways, I'm it. and no matter how hard they try, God finds no pleasure with those who are controlled by the flesh. But when the Spirit of Christ empowers your life. You are not dominated by the flesh, but by the Spirit. And if you are not joined to the Spirit of the Anointed One, you're not of Him. Now Christ lives His life in you. And even though your body may be dead because of the effects of sin, His life-giving Spirit imparts life to you because you are fully accepted by God. Ooh, what a mouthful. His life-given Spirit imparts life into you because, or for this reason, or this is the way that it, that it occurs, because you are fully accepted by God. 
Yes, God raised Jesus to life. And since God's spirit of resurrection lives in you, he will also raise your dying body to life by the same spirit that breathes life into you. There's your scripture for those of you that need to believe in a natural, physical, bodily healing. It's paid for. Not only with his stripes were we healed and by his stripes are we healed. Not only is healing the children's bread and he arises with healing in his wings, but if the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells within you then he will make come to life or as the King James says quicken your mortal body he didn't just want to come save your soul he wants to save you spirit soul mind and body and he's looking in fact I would say all of creation is groaning and waiting for the manifestation of full sons who have walked in the fullness of their adoption and have matured and know who they are and whose they are And since God's spirit of resurrection lives in you, he will also raise your dying body to life by the same spirit. Somebody's sick. I'm going to read this one more time. If, if Since God's spirit of resurrection lives in you, he will raise your dying body to life by the same spirit that breathes life into you. So then, beloved ones, the flesh has no claims on us at all, and we have no further obligation to live in obedience to it. For when you live controlled by the flesh, you are about to die. But if the life of the Spirit puts to death the corrupt ways of flesh, we then taste his abundant life. And Jesus said, the thief comes but to kill and to steal and to destroy. But I am come. Not I will come, not I have come. I am come, which it's the ever-present now. I am come. Which means tomorrow when you get there, I am is already there. And yesterday when you walked there, I am was, was there. And right where you sit in your seat, I am is there. So I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Now, verse 14, this is what I wanted to get to. The mature children of God are those who are moved by the impulses of his spirit. That's good. That's real good. When Robin stood over here a minute ago. She was immediately moved by the impulses of the Spirit to saying, It may look like I'm surrounded. That was not planned. But I'm surrounded by you. When I was singing over here and say, It's your love, your love, your love. That was not planned. That's not been sung. That was something that just came. It's moved by the impulses of the Spirit. And it doesn't just have to stay within the context of what we understand as church. Church is not the four walls. Church is the meeting of us together. And the church is the bride of Christ that goes outside the four walls and tells of the glorious goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we contain everything that we understand about church within the four walls, we have no right to wonder why in the world it seems as if the world's going to hell in a handbasket. This is always supposed to have been the place that we come together at, at, at an equal table. You, you ever notice if you sit down at the table, uh, I'll tell you a real quick story. When you sit down at the table, you're just all equal. And the Father spreads his smorgasbord before all of us. Even in the Old Testament, Jonathan, do you remember? Or, or David said, is there anybody left of the house of Jonathan I could show mercy and favor to? Does anybody remember this? And they said, there is this one boy, his name is Mephibosheth. He was the son of Jonathan, and he had lost his legs. And, and he was hiding away. He was afraid if David found out about him because by blood, he was the rightful uh, heir to the throne. Jonathan was killed. Saul was killed. But, but Samuel anointed. Anyways, long story short, they finally found this man Mephibosheth. They brought him in and David said, do me a favor. Take him 
as it were, a wheelchair or whatever and all, and shove him up underneath the table because underneath the table, you can't see who can walk and who can't. We're all equal at the table. So it is in the kingdom. We're all equal at the table. It doesn't matter what you think your walk is or it isn't. When you push up to the table of the Father, we're all equal. Cost too much. I won't do that. The nature or the mature children of God are those who are moved by the impulses of the Holy Spirit. And if you did not receive the, or, or you did not receive the spirit of religious duty, literally that means the spirit of slavery. I'm no longer slave to fear, what we sang. There was a reason for it. You have not received the spirit to religious duty, which is better known as slavery. Are you telling me religious duty is slavery? No, Paul's telling you that. I'm just emphasizing what he said. And to be more accurate, all Scripture is God-breathed, so God is saying it, Paul declared it, and I'm just repeating it. If you're trying to live a religious duty life, man, that's bondage and slavery. And what you're going to do is you're going to mess up, and you're going to condemn yourself because you messed up, and you're never going to get anywhere because you're going to take one step forward and two steps back. Oh, I did this, or I did that. Or if you knew what I said last night, or how I acted, or whatever, that, that, that's okay. God can take care of the flesh nature. You don't have that flesh nature. You are not identifying with your Adamic nature. We identify with our new identity as a son or a daughter of the Heavenly Father just in the same way Jesus Christ did. And you did not receive the spirit of religious duty, leading you back into the fear of never being good enough. The spirit of religious duty always leads me to feeling like I'm never good enough. I mean, it's, it's one... the the. the the, the, the spirit of religious duty, the spirit of slavery will always lead me into never feeling good enough. What is the place where I never feel good enough? I'll tell you, if you listen. Eve, hath God said that in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you would die? God knows that in the day you eat of this tree, you will not surely die. But God knows when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, good and evil, doing good, doing bad, getting good, getting bad. When you eat that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Who said that? The serpent. Who says it in 2020? The serpent. If you do good, you get good. But if you do bad, you get bad. But it's what you do that makes you like God. The Bible was very clear. God created man in his image and after his likeness. He said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. The truth of it is, you are already walking in the image of God. The lie is, you've got to do something to be like that. And when you try to keep religious rules and this religious ceremony up to make yourself feel worthy, immediately what you've done is you've plucked a piece of fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and every time you eat of it, you will surely die. It's better than you think. We've not received the spirit of religious duty leading you back into the fear of never being good enough. I love, love, love the next part. But you have received the spirit of full acceptance. King James says, you have received the spirit of adoption. The spirit of full acceptance or the spirit of adult sonship, which is to say full, mature, completed sonship. The Aramaic can be translated the spirit of consecrated children. So you know the, the, 
Hebraic custom would be, and you know this, and I don't want to belabor the point, but the Hebraic custom would be at 12 years old, a, a boy would be bar mitzvahed, and he would work with his father until the time he was 30 years old. When he was 30 years old, working with his father. How, now, how old was Jesus when he started his earthly ministry? Just curious. Well, he was 30, is that right? How old was uh, Joseph when he came up out of the pit? Was he also 30? How old was David when he received not one but three crowns? Anybody want to guess? 30 is the biblical number for complete, mature sonship. And so what would happen is the, the, the Hebrew boy would be bar mitzvahed at 12 and he would work his father until the day he was 30. Then at 30, he would be put on a horse. You've heard this a thousand times. says Tony Button has told it that many times. Put on a horse, paraded if, it, if the father could afford to do so, paraded through the town where they lived. And this is what they would say about that son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. How old was Jesus when he came up out of the river Jordan? And what was heard from the heavens, from the heavenly Father? This is my beloved Son. Here's what I'm, I'm going to give you a free one real quick. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately he's driven into the wilderness. And what's the enemy going to challenge? His identity. If thou be the Son of God. Three times. If thou be, if thou be. Father knew ahead of time that that was going to be the temptation. So before he ever got challenged, Father said, I want you to know something, boy. Before you get to the temptation, you are my beloved Son. Before the enemy plants the lie that says, oh, he already, his sonship was already confirmed by Father long before the serpent ever had a chance to challenge it. So is yours. So is yours. So is yours. If you could hear the Father today saying, you are my beloved children and I'm very well pleasing you, it would change our approach and what it would do, it would cause us to abandon the orphaned heart that the Father is so longing to redeem. You have received the spirit of full acceptance enfolding you into the family of God and you will never feel orphaned for as He rises up within us, our spirits join him in saying the words of tender affection. Beloved Father. This is in, in, in joins us, enfolds us within the family. And, and the, the idea is, the inference is, in the same way that Jesus can say, My Father. You want to read the you want to read the Lord's Prayer? The Lord's Prayer is not our Father which art in heaven. That's the pattern prayer. The Lord's Prayer is in John 17 when he said this, Father, I pray, glorify thou me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. Or Father, make them one, even as you and I are one, as you are in me and I am in you. Make them one. That's the, that's the Lord's Prayer. And the inference here is we have the same access, the same ability, and the same opportunity to call upon him and say, My dear Father. In the same way that Jesus did when he prayed in John chapter 17. That's the inference. Abba is not a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word transliterated into the Greek letters. Abba is the Aramaic word for father. It is also found in Mark 14, 36, Galatians 4, 6. Abba is also a word used for devotion, a term of endearment. That's why some have concluded that Abba could be translated as daddy or papa. It is hard to imagine a closer relationship to have with God than to call Him Abba, our beloved Father. Verse 16, For the Holy Spirit makes God's fatherhood real to us as He whispers into our innermost being, You are God's beloved child. Some of you still can't get off your mind what you did last night or last week or last month or last year. And you identify with what you did. Let me, let me make this very clear. You're not a human doing. You're a human being. 
And your being is determined by your father. And your father says very clearly, you are God's beloved child. See, we respond out of what our perception of ourself is. If we have a broken perception or broken perspective of relationship with Father and we don't ever receive that and we have an orphaned heart, then what we do is we wall ourselves off. I've done it. I've had a very good natural father. Don't misunderstand me. But we wall ourselves off. And most of this happens, especially in what we call the Western church, because of the way that God is preached behind the podium every week. You know, it's, it's fear, 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 fear. Are you saying we shouldn't fear God? I think you should probably fear God. It's a good thing. In fact, the, the, fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But it's not a fear as if you want to read, if you want to fight verse for verse, go to, go to uh, 1 John 4 that says perfect love casts out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. Perfect love casts out fear. Did I know as a young boy that my father, who was 260 pounds and 6 foot 2 and 3 quarters, as he would say, could crush me being this big? I knew that he could, so there was that reverence, understanding, but I never in my life ever thought that's what he would actually do. Because that's my father, that's my daddy. You'll get the point. Since we are his true children, we qualify to share in all his treasures. For indeed, we are heirs of God himself. And since we are joined to Christ, we also inherit all that he is and all that he has. We will experience being co-glorified with Him, provided that we can accept the sufferings as our own. His sufferings as our own. Verse 19, I am convinced that any suffering we endure is less than nothing compared to the magnitude of glory that is about to be unveiled within us. The entire universe is standing on tiptoe, yearning to see the unveiling of God's glory. Or the manifestation of the sons of God. Interestingly, the Greek word used here for unveiling is the apocalypsis, which is the same word for the full title of the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, the unveiling of Christ, which tells me the unveiling of our eyes and the unveiling of Christ is probably the same thing. The unveiling of Jesus Christ, the revealing of Jesus Christ is simultaneous to the unveiling of our understanding and perception of who He is because who He is has not changed. He said, Behold, I am the Lord. I change not. What needs to be unveiled is not not just as if he's hidden and unveiled, he's hidden from our understanding. So he is unveiled as our perception of him is unveiled. The created universe is but a backdrop for the dramatic appearing of God's sons and daughters, unveiled with the glory of Jesus Christ upon them. The verb tense in the Greek text is clear that this unveiling is imminent, soon to happen and destined to take place. Anyways, let's move on. For against its will, the universe itself has had to endure the empty futility resulting from the consequences of human sin. But now with eager expectation, all expectation, a woman never gave a birth that wasn't expecting. But now with eager expectation, all creation longs for freedom from its slavery to decay and to experience with us the wonderful freedom coming to God's children. To this day, we are aware of the universal agony and groaning of creation, as if it were in the contractions of labor for childbirth. And it's not just creation, but also we, who have already experienced the first fruits of the Spirit, inwardly groan as we passionately long to experience our full status as God's sons and daughters, including our physical bodies being transformed. So, read some notes, and we'll see where the Lord goes. The redemption or the rescue of the orphaned heart. Another way to see it is a new look at redemption. For many years, 
Western Christianity has focused on saving souls from hell. And while this is not necessarily wrong or bad, there is some evidence that this was not the focus of the early church. At least not in the way that it's preached today. We have essentially watered down the gospel to this. Believe Jesus, get saved from sin, escape a fiery hell, and go to heaven one day when you die. Would you agree? I'm not casting stones. I'm not throwing off. I'm legitimately asking a question and asking, is this not the what most of Western Christianity preaches. And I'm not saying any of this is bad. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we cannot possibly comprehend the fullness of what He has for us in life and life more abundantly if all we do is believe Jesus, get saved from sin, escape a fiery hell, then go to heaven one day when we die. It's not necessarily bad or wrong, but it's most certainly incomplete. The focus of Jesus' ministry was never about getting people into heaven, but getting us to see that heaven has come to us. Let me say it this way, and I highlighted it when he gave it to me. Jesus wasn't as concerned about getting us to heaven as he was about getting heaven into us. Allegorical scripture has been hijacked and misinterpreted by those with no scriptural understanding to mean something that it does not mean. The gospel is about the rescue of the orphaned heart. Jesus came to seek and save not only those, but that which was lost. What was lost? For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. You've read it in John yourself, have you not? That is a direct King James verse. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save, not those, that which was lost. And the that that was lost is the that that was forfeited, is, it, is the true identity as full sons with full stature and full daughters with full stature as, as, as children of God. That's what was lost. And Jesus came, the Son of Man came to seek it, and He sought it and He found it, and to save it, which is to redeem it. Not just to seek and save those which were lost. He did that too, to be sure. But the way that He did that was to seek and save that which was lost. He never used fear to do it. He used love to do it. And perfect love casts out all fear. Even the Old Testament understanding was love is strong as death. So what does lost mean? Does it mean uh, when, you're, when we say, you know, well, he's lost. How I many, you know, there's the old, old song, I was lost and undone without God or his son and all that. Lost. It, to most of us in Western church, it means, well, you're going to hell, you know. One day you're going to die, you know. And I, I, depending on your perspective, you know, the, the devil and his imps and all the demons, you know, they're going to pull you down with their pitchfork and their fibrogated tail and all that, you know. And, you know, yeah, you're going to burn forever and ever. Is that what we're saved from? Is that what lost is? Does lost mean the cussers, the smokers, the drinkers, the adulterers, the fornicators? Does it? Hardly. Peter was a cusser. <laughs> but anyways, those may or may not be symptoms of being lost, but not identifiers. For more on what Jesus considers as being lost, you might want to refer, refer to Luke 15, the parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost or the prodigal son. In each story, the lost thing was found. And the Father rejoiced in each one of them. That which was lost is that which was forfeited in the garden by Adam. Jesus came to seek it out and to save it. What he came to save was our true identity as sons and daughters of God. That's the hope. I'm going to finish up. That's the cause. That's the purpose. That's the focus and goal of Jesus' life and ministry. To reveal the heart of the Father and how it passionately beats after his family. Not angry at his sons, if anything, angry at the results of sinful nature. The orphaned heart 
or the heart estranged from the Father is what the Father seeks to redeem. Verse 15 of Romans 8 is emphatic. He, he seeks to give us the spirit of full acceptance. This resurrection life you received from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. This is the message version. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a child like, What's next, Papa? God's spirit touches our spirit and confirms who we really are. We know who he is and we know who we are, father and children. And we know that we are going to get what's coming to us an unbelievable inheritance. Now, in the medical world, I'm going to talk about this just for a minute and then, and then we'll, we'll be out of here by three. In the medical world there, world, there is a condition known as reactive attachment disorder. Anybody ever heard of it? Some of you counselors, I'm sure, have heard of it. You've probably used it. Reactive attachment disorder. The Mayo Clinic states this. Reactive attachment disorder is a rare, I don't think it's rare. But probably diagnosed rarely, but I don't think it's rare. In fact, I think it probably is more rampant than rare, but, you know, who am I? Reactive attachment disorder is a serious condition in which an infant or a young child does not establish healthy attachments with parents or caregivers, specifically fathers. Reactive attachment disorder may develop if the child's basic need for comfort, affection, and nurturing aren't met, and if loving, caring, stable attachments with others are not established. If our first introduction to the understanding of who Abba really is is not as Abba, but as this mean, vindictive person that is out to get us, out to destroy us, or as Brian Zahn calls them, the faceless white monster. You know, the little, the little tracks that you give out. Man, those things scared me to death growing up. I can tell you this is the truth. One time I went to the bathroom, and I was familiar with it, and I saw one, and I held it because I wasn't going in that bathroom with that track waiting for me because at the end of every one of them was, I mean, I mean, he has no face, but the reality is he does have a face because the Bible says that the glory of God is found in the face of Jesus Christ. And where's the face of Jesus Christ? It's on the cross saying, Father, forgive them to his own tormentors. Not father, get him, get him, get him, get him, get him, get him. But that's what we're taught. And because we're taught that in church, we have, should I say it, reactive attachment disorder. We have orphan hearts because the men that should be telling us about father and creating this place of nurturing, loving, full acceptance are saying, if you don't get it right, you're going to bust Because their God looks like them. Mean and ugly and vindictive. The Abba of Jesus is none of those things. Jesus' suffering on the cross is not what God did to Jesus to get us, it's what, it's what God was doing through Jesus to woo us back to Him. The Bible is very clear that God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world unto Himself. Reactive attachment disorder can start in infancy. There's little research on signs and symptoms of this disorder beyond early childhood, and it remains uncertain, this is what they say, I probably would say, whether it occurs in children older than five, it does. Signs and symptoms may include unexplained withdrawal. I want you to think about your spiritual life. I want you to think about your social life. I just want you to think about your life in general. If any of these meet 
a place where you are or a place where you've been, then maybe you have also experienced uh, reactive attachment disorder. Here's the thing. Unexplained withdrawal, fear, sadness or irritability, a sad and listless appearance, not seeking comfort or showing no response when comfort is given. Hold a minute. I'm going to show you how true what I just said is. Everybody, sit still just like you are. Don't say she. Boom. Now, if you could look at what the picture that I just took, you would see not seeking comfort or showing response when comfort is given. The next one, failure to smile. Failure to smile. You, just reading this in the human form alone is enough to, to make anybody with a heart cry and say, oh my God. Reactive attachment disorder. Signs and symptoms. Failure to smile. Watching others closely, but not engaging socially. Skeptical. Fearful. Not re- non-relational. Just like the God they worship. Failing to ask for support or assistance. Failure to reach out when picked up. Can you imagine walking up to a baby and you go to reach them up and they just sit there and look at you like, I don't know what to do with that. I know what it feels like. I do it on a weekly basis in this building. The heart's desire of True Vine Ministries, even back when it was Rainbow of Love Ministries, was this, to convey the love of God to the world. Original founder right there. If nothing else... If, if nothing else is right, if there's no other doctorate degrees behind the names, if there's no, other, uh, there's no other theological understanding, if there's nothing else given, if we can get this one thing down, it reminds me of what Jesus said. Here's what I'm going to tell you. You take everything back there that you think you should do, and I'm going to tell you to do two things, and you're going to be just fine. In fact, I'm going to tell you one thing to do, and I'm going to give you a way to do it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, how do we do that? Here's how you do it. You love your neighbors yourself. So it's a picture of the cross. Vertically, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and, and horizontally and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he said. No interest in playing peekaboo or other interactive games. These symptoms remind me of what modern Christianity does to people and for, some, and for the same reason. Jesus' focus and goal was relationship sparked by an everlasting love. The goal of modern Christianity is religious duty ignited by fear. No wonder those with this, with this disorder withdraw, have little to no joy in our isolationists. They've never been told they have a father. Eli. They've never been told they have a father. The only God they know is the faceless white monster on the gospel tracks that does more to instill fear than some horror movies. At least with horror movies, you know it's fiction. Sounded funny. I want you to hear it again. At least with horror movies, you know you're watching a fiction. Unfortunately, when it's told behind the pulpit of churches, people believe it as absolute truth and they live in fear every day of their life because, you know, I need to hide from God. It's what Adam said. We were afraid. We hid because we were naked. Adam, where are you? Adam. Adam. (laughs) Adam, where are you? Not because God didn't know where Adam was, but Adam needed to know Even that you did this, you can still hear my voice. It amazes me, the goodness of the Father. You can still hear the voice. Adam, where are you? 
I heard your voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. If you don't hear any other message I've ever preached, go back and get the message. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid. That's the subtitle. The title is Unmasking Me. I brought in a bunch of children's masks and put my... And that's what we live. We live with a mask. In society, we live with a mask. Some of it is the mask that we have created on social media. For some of us. We want people to think this is our life. And although that might be some of your life, that's not the total of everything that you are. That's the highlight reel. And we, and we compare our real life to the highlight reel of others and say, man, I suck. <laughs> Have you ever done it? Have you ever done it? I've done it. Like, man, I thought we had it going. I look at this, man, they got it. No, no, no. Until our orphan heart is completely and utterly loved and accepted, we will have trust issues. I'm talking about the Father right now. This, this happens socially with, with other people, and that, that's obviously a part of it. But what I, want, what I want you to focus on is your relationship with your understanding of who God is right now. Have you ever had a trust issue with Him? I would have a trust issue with somebody that I knew was looking to beat me over the head every time I messed up. In fact, I would not only have trust issues, I would fully and utterly rebel against that person. And that's exactly what people do. They rebel against religious duty, and people misinterpret that as being rebelling against God. I had a friend one time that called me and said, I want you to pray for my daughter. I was driving home. I had done a Bible study for him. It's a few hours away. I want you to pray for my daughter. Uh, you know, she's, uh, she's a meth addict. And I had already known her. I had counseled with the daughter some. I had helped her get into a, a clinic in, Winston, I think it was Winston-Salem. Uh, this was a long, crazy thing. I'm talking about talking them out of the room with, with loaded guns. This was a long process with me. And I, I'm driving home, and I said to the person, I said, well, honey, she's just running from God. And immediately the Lord rebuked me. He said, nobody runs from me. I'd always heard the running from God. You've heard that. Oh, we'll have to pray for him. He's just running from God. And the Lord rebuked me. He said, no one runs from me. They run from the false picture that has been portrayed of me. Because if they ever see me clearly, they will always run to me. Everyone longs to be accepted by Father. Everyone longs for loving. Everybody does. And the only reason that people do not respond to your altar calls is because you're using hell in fear. And it, my father said it best, if you have to win somebody in the kingdom by fear, you're going to have to use fear to keep them in the kingdom. But if they ever come based on love, if they ever see the lap of the father, as, that's my place. That's where he's calling me to. That's what, that's what the Bible says when he says, I can boldly approach his throne. Just like Rachel, if she were to come to me today and run up to me right now in the middle of this, I would stop everything I'm doing, pick her up in my arms and say, what can I do for you, princess? When we begin to preach the love of God as not the love of God, but the love of a father whose table is all-inclusive. And when we sit at the table, it doesn't matter what our walk is because we're not walking. We're in a place of rest. You're telling me I don't have to do anything? Imagine, imagine. I've got... Your father is your father is your father, no matter whether you know about it or not. If I had never met this woman, and thank God I did, she did a, you did a good job with me. <laughs> no, if you knew most of my life, you'd be like, ah, bitty bitty. <laughs> but 
I'll use her because I favor her more than I favored my father. And if you ever saw us after 40 years and put her, and I didn't know who my mother was, and put her here and put me there, you said, wait a minute, there's something very suspicious about this because this boy looks like her. Have you ever seen that the, the married couple and the one boy don't look anything like his daddy, but suspiciously a lot like the mail carrier? <laughs> trying to give you a little reprieve. You can laugh. It's okay to laugh in church. If you, if, if you had never seen my son David or my son Jace or Abby or whatever, and, and, and then one day we just, he just appeared and you'd be like, dang, that kid looks a lot like John. Did you know that you resemble your father whether or not you know it? And you belong to your father whether or not you know it? And his love for you is everlasting whether or not you know it? It's not your knowing it that makes it real, but it's your knowing it that makes it real to you. You accept me? You love me just like I am, not because of what I do? Here's the words of the Father. Yes. Yes. I don't have to withdraw myself because of something that I've done. I don't have to be afraid that you're looking to hit me over the head because of the mistakes I made. You're telling me you fully and utterly accept me as I am? And, and I can tell you because I'm a father of six, when you train your children to understand that no matter what they do, although behavior needs to be addressed, that, but, but, but they're not judged by their behavior, but their person and, and who they are when they're secure in who they are will, will, will cause their behavior to improve, as it were. So you don't have to behave to be my son or daughter. You're my son or daughter. And because you are and because you know you're fully loved, just go be who you are. Oh, and by the way, if you fall, I'm going to help you get up, dust yourself off, and keep going because I will not reject you because you fail. I'm still daddy. You're still my child. Why is this not preached in the Western church? I'm going to tell you why. One reason, because you don't get a whole lot of money for preaching stuff like this. You get money when you scare people and tell them they're going to hell because they didn't give or God's going to curse them you know, and burn their barns and all that foolishness. I used to hear that in church. Yeah, burn your barns. I'm like, I had the vision of like lightning bolts coming out of the fingers of God and shooting on people's barns and burning it up. Like, man, that's a mean dude. I mean, whatever you do, don't tick off God. Yeah, and it's funny, but you probably can identify with what I'm talking about. You've been through that. You've sat through that. Like, man, you better not mess up with this guy because, I mean, he's got ultimate power. You mess him up, he's going to squash you. That's not what he's like at all. The one scripture that Paul writes is, Jesus was the perfect expression of the Father. The message that I like to preach, because I live in 2020, and I'm not nearly as smart as Paul was. I didn't see it at the feet of Gamaliel, although I did see it at the feet of some wonderful men of God. Is Jesus is God's selfie. I preached that in West Virginia at camp a couple years ago. Oh, and by the way, he didn't use any filters. Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I saw somebody, somebody else shared this. I wish it was original to me. It's not. He said, someone asked him one time, if you knew you had one day to live, one day to live, what would you do? And he said, man, I'd, I'd live it up. I, you know, the old Tim McGraw song, I'd go skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing. You can't do all that in one day, but I'd eat. Jesus knew he had one day to live, and he washed feet. Robed himself in a towel and washed the dirt off his disciples' feet and said things like this. He among you who would be the greatest, let him be the least. Literally bowed himself down. That was not Jesus apart from the Father. That was the Father manifesting who he was through the life of his son Jesus. 
You're telling me, you're telling me God is not condemning me. I'm telling you, God has got a 42-year-old looking at you, doing everything I can to wipe that dirt off your feet and say, This is this is what you can you can live in the newness of life. You can have life more abundantly. You can stop looking in the mirror of rejection because it's not a mirror. Look into the mirror of his word and say, You are his beloved. You are the apple of his eye. You're everything that he died for. In fact, not only is he our inheritance, you are his inheritance. loves you. He loves you fully, unequivocally. Until our orphan heart is completely and utterly loved and accepted, we'll have trust issues. I would dare say that every act of poor behavior will find its roots in mistrust. If that is so in the natural, it is so in the spiritual. No orphan heart has ever been rescued through a good old-fashioned beating. Think about that. Think about it in the natural. I'm going, out, going down to Barium Springs when it was, and grabbing those orphans up and say, I'll tell you what, I can fix their behavior. How are you going to do it? I'm just going to beat the heck out of them. I would have said the other word, but probably six of you would have left. You'll say it when you leave, but you'll, you'll leave if I say it. I'd, I'd go down there, man, if I got one of those 13-year-old, you know, 13-year-old girls. Man, all, one, get me one of them little 13-year-old boys with behavior issues, man. All you got to do is whip that behind 500 times. Man, we'll, we'll fix him real quick. No, you're going to give him more trust issues than he already had. But if you bring him into the family, if you love him like he's your own, if you treat him like he's your own, if you give him a spot at the table, and it doesn't matter what he looks like or what he smells like or what he sounds like, and he knows he's fully, I know because I can speak from experience. I have done this. I have done this. I would do it on a greater measure, and we probably will one day with other children. But, but there are people that have, for instance, played sports for me that come to my house, and they know at my house they're equal to my children. In fact, they'll clean out my cabinets just like my boys do. I won't call any names, Xavion. That's the point of it. I'm almost finished. Fear may motivate one to modify behavior, but it will never rescue the orphan heart. The deepest cry for every orphan heart is for full acceptance. The deepest cry from the heart of the Father is to rescue the orphan heart. Say it again. The deepest cry for every orphan heart is to be fully accepted. And the deepest cry from the heart of the Father is to rescue your orphan heart, which is to say, to fully accept you. He wants to rescue you from the lie that you're bad, rescue you from the lie that you aren't good enough, rescue you from the lie that performance predicates acceptance. Performance does not predicate acceptance, but acceptance will cause a manifestation of joy and peace. And that is life more abundantly. A lost coin was found. One of ten. The lost sheep was found. He left the 99 and went after the one. He came back to the 99 with the recovered sheep. And the lost son, the prodigal son. When the prodigal son came to himself, when he remembered the goodness of his father. I'm going to say something that might, that, that might sound strange to you, but I'm going to let you know. 
all of you, every human being that has ever lived, has innately within your being the understanding that Father is good. But it's but, but for most of us, because of what we're taught in our life experiences, that gets distorted. I'm here to try to remind you and jog your memory so you can come to yourself and say, in my Father's house, even those that, that work for it, they've got enough to, enough to eat and some to spare. My Father is so good that His goodness is greater than any of my badness. Remember when the prodigal son comes to the Father? I love this. It's, it's probably my favorite story. In fact, it is my favorite story and parable that Jesus tells in the whole Bible. Prodigal son takes, he, he blows his inheritance. He's living, uh, at, the Bible says he goes to a far off country. He's way away from home. He's way away from where he should be. You know, he's going to eat with the, with the food that the swine is given. Not, that's a double whammy because Jews weren't even allowed to raise pigs, let alone eat with them. And he says, he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine ate, and he, and he came to himself. Here's my prayer for this morning. I'm praying, if it's one or ten, that somebody in here comes to himself. And he, and he said, even the servants of my father's house has, have, have food and some to spare. I'll return to my father's house. I'll return to my father's house, and when I get there, here's what I'm going to do. And he writes, he takes out his iPad and writes down his notes. He didn't have an iPad, but he writes down his notes. I'm going to say, I have sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. And I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'm not asking you for reinstatement. I'm not, you owe me nothing. I get it. I get it. I get it. Just let me work for you because I know you've got enough to pay me and I don't have to starve to death. And so that's what I'm going to do. So, so, so prodigal son is on his way back home. He's on his way to the father. He was in a far country, so it took him some time. And he probably was so famished because, I mean, he was going to eat the, the pig slop that he didn't have a whole lot of energy. It probably expended every bit of energy that he had just to try to make it back to the father's house. Some of you, it might have taken you everything that you had just to get here this morning and sit down and hear it. But yet, the father sees him. The Bible says that he was yet a great way off. And in other words, he hadn't fully arrived. He didn't have it all together. He wasn't cleaned up, fixed up, prettied up, or anything else. The father saw him, and he said, that's my boy. And he left the porch, and he ran. And the Bible says he fell in the sun. And the son goes to rehearse what he was going to say to the father. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no more worthy to be called your... And the father interrupts his whole monologue and says, this is my boy. He's returned. Go get him a new robe and get him some new shoes and bring some... Rip. Kill the fatty calf. My boy, which was dead, is alive again. And my boy, which was lost, is found. He never even considered the boy being a servant. He never lost his standing as a son. And neither have you. And I don't care what you did or didn't do. I don't care what failures you have or you don't have. I don't care if you're 3, 30, or 130. He still accepts you. He still loves you. He's still an Abba. He still has a lap waiting for you to climb upon. He's saying, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Give you rest. Why are you weary, heavy laden? Because you've been trying to work it and trying to do it and trying to do the right stuff and keep the right stuff and you fall and you get further. But he said, come unto me. All of you who labor and are burdened down, heavy laden. He didn't say, I'll give you the opportunity for rest. He didn't say, I'll give you quiet room and quiet music. He literally says, I will give you, it's a gift. Rest is a gift. You cannot sleep and be able to rest. 
How? When you know that you are fully and utterly accepted and there's not a thing you can do about it. Kill a fatted calf. You know that Papa was, he going to make some steak. You know how he had his cook? Well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, I would say, I don't know. She's a, uh, she's a medium rare girl. My father-in-law likes it mooing. He, y'all pray for him. He definitely needs to get saved. What would it be like if we lived every day of our lives feeling and knowing the reality that we are completely and utterly accepted? And when I mess up, and you probably will, I won't. You will. <laughs> Shh, Tim. When you mess up, you do not lose your standing as a son or a daughter. Let me tell you something. Contrary to popular belief, Elizabeth and I are very well aware that our children mess up. Jake, come sit with me, big boy. Quickly. You dressed up for the occasion. Come have a seat. Look at him strutting. He can't even walk normal anymore. Come up here. Have a seat. Any nice looking? You probably won't believe this, but this kid has messed up so much. Did you say not that much? <laughs> so much, it's ridiculous. And there's not one thing he could do that would make me disavow or disown him. Now, there, I might stick my foot in some places if he does some certain things, but I think he'll do. Did you know that Jacob is my adopted son? I adopted him. And I have five other children. There's not one of them that I love more than I love him. In fact, most people think he's my favorite. He's not. You are. Along with the rest of them. That's Rachel now. Rachel, she's pretty, she's up there. I ain't gonna lie. I like her. I like her a lot. She sits on my lap for coffee. You come sit on my lap in the morning for coffee. We'll talk about it. This is my beloved son. When I, when we finally got his adoption papers, you don't need to know the process. You want to know it, I'll tell you. It's not a secret. But when I finally got him, I handed him a card with adoption papers in it. And the card that says, to my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. I don't know how God did it. Somehow he made him kind of look like me. Doesn't he? It's ridiculous. I mean, he's blessed for it, but it's ridiculous. There's not a thing this boy could do. And believe me, he's done some dumb stuff. Elizabeth, that was her first amen of the whole service. He's done some dumb stuff. There's not a thing that he or Isaac or David, Abigail, Jason or Rachel, not a thing any of them could do. Not a thing. Not the worst thing that would make me say, I don't want anything to do with you. Jesus said this one time to his disciples. He said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, he, he said, how many of you, how many of you, if your son came up, Jacob comes up to me and asks me today, Dad, which he will, believe me, he will. Every morning his question is, uh, hey, Dad, am I using cash or card? And what he means is, what money do I use, what source of money to go get my breakfast? His first greeting to his mother every day, and it don't matter if it's 6.30 in the morning, Mom, boys was up. Is it? Jesus said, if your son comes to you and asks you for, uh, come to ask you for a fish, would you give him a serpent? Give him a snake. Or if your son came and asked you for a piece of bread, would you give him a rock? And of course, everyone would, would immediately say, no. And he said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your son, how much more will your father, which is in heaven, give to those that ask? 
The problem is we don't ask. And because the reason we don't ask is because we don't know that he's a good father. We think he's a mean, white, faceless monster. Well, I'm not asking that guy for anything else either. I'm hiding from that guy, just like we do. I'll isolate myself away from that guy. Not only will I isolate myself away from that guy, I will isolate myself from any construct that resembles that face. And that's why your friends don't come to church. Because in a lot of places, and I'm not condemning, it's just the reality, in a lot of places, that's, that's, the, that's what they see when they get there. The big, ugly, white, faceless guy. And if you do the right stuff and behave the right way, you get to be a part of the social club. And if you don't, you can get kicked out real quick. It's not that way in the family. So let's pray. Lord, to the best of my ability, I've tried to convey what you've shared with me and I feel like you wanted me to share with your body this morning. I know, one, because, uh, because I'm your son, I have experience, but just through discernment and common understanding that there are people here this morning that have experienced this uh, this disorder that have experienced in their lives a disconnect there are those that are sitting here right now with an orphaned heart they've never understood or heard about or seen you as father you've always just been this big judge I guess they never read the part that you judge from a mercy seat. Your throne is a mercy seat. Which means you rule and reign from a seat of mercy, a place of mercy. Father, I ask you this morning that someone in here today that has heard these words that I spoke that are spirit and life, that it would wrap around their heart. And whether they come up to the front now or whether they meet with you later on this afternoon, or tomorrow, or it goes into deep into the soil of their soul, that it would bring fruit. And that at some point, I pray, sooner than later, they would see themselves as fully beloved, fully accepted, and having a seat at your table. It's in seeing you as you really are that we see ourselves as we really are. And it's, it's as we love you for who you are that we can love ourselves for who we are and then we can love our neighbor as we love ourselves we can't love our neighbors ourselves if we don't love ourselves we don't love ourselves if we think that we've been rejected and dismissed and we'll never be good enough help us to see ourselves through your eyes today let this message burn let it sear into their hearts and minds if they never come back, Lord, don't ever let him forget. That old redneck preacher told me he loves me and there's anything I can do about it. Thank you for your spirit and presence. I pray, Lord, that as we enter those baptismal waters this afternoon, I know you're already there. I know your spirit's there. I don't fully even understand it, but there's something mysterious about identifying with your death and burial and coming up in new resurrection life. I pray that everyone that enters those waters, Lord, would lay down and identify the death of the old Adam nature and would raise anew with the nature of Christ in us.